Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Outspoken with White and Jordan. 100% engagement. It's a total disrespect. Download, stand well back, listen. Jim White and Simon Jordan. I don't see that view. Outspoken with White and Jordan. From the world's biggest sports radio station, Talk Sport. Thanks for listening to Outspoken with White and Jordan. I'm Jim White, and today myself and Simon were joined in studio by former England striker Michael Owen and his son James, who are promoting their new documentary that hopes to bring awareness to Stargardt disease. Meantime, why has the atmosphere gone flat at Stamford Bridge? Is Pochettino right to blame his predecessors? And are football atmospheres better up north? Plus, we were joined in studio by former Southampton Chief Executive Martin Simmons, looking at what went wrong for the Saints last season and football finance in the Premier League. This is Outspoken with White and Jordan. Simon and I are always delighted when we have special guests in the studio. But this morning, Simon, we truly have two special guests. Someone I've known for years, former England striker Michael Owen. And alongside Michael is his son, James. Guys, Michael, good morning to you. Good morning, James. Morning. Yeah, morning, guys. Good to see you. Um... Why are Michael and James in here? Well, they are part of a new documentary which airs next week entitled Football is for Everyone, which tells a story of this very famous footballing family and how they have coped with James's condition, Stargat disease, which James has had since the age of eight and James is 17 now and looks very smart as a young 17-year-old, <laughs> may I say. But what is Stargardt disease? It's a chronic eye condition, which essentially means that you partially lose your sight. And of course, for James, James thought about being a top footballer like his dad was. So he's had to cope with that, but he's doing not bad in the world of football, as you're about to find out. Here's a clip from the documentary. He's desperate to be involved in football, desperate to love football, but he can't see anyone. Michael Owen and his son James are discovering another side to the beautiful game. I've never met anyone before with visual impairments where it can't be fixed with glasses. Following a unique team. We have to make good decisions under pressure. And that's the responsibility that comes with being an England player. On a mission for World Cup glory. It's about changing lives and changing perceptions. Football is for everyone. Coming soon to TNT Sports and Discovery+. Plus. So, we've got this documentary to look forward to, and I, for one, will be watching it. Michael James, you're really welcome in here. James, I want to start with you. I mean, it's a chronic eye condition. Um, 
you discovered you had it at the age of eight. Can you talk us through it and, and, and what it's involved regards your life? Oh, well, obviously it's a massive impact to my life because it's one of your main senses you use day to day. But um, I've obviously I have a great family which has helped me support um, the whole way through. But um, I got diagnosed quite young, like eight. I can't really remember anything from eight, but I do remember how it made me feel. I don't remember actually getting diagnosed. But um, I remember coming back from school, like sometimes upset. And um, my dad's definitely helped me through them times. And um, now I don't almost ever think about my eyesight as much anymore. It's almost just something I deal with and you have to crack on either way. These are the cards I've been dealt. And um, I mean, it's great to spread awareness. I think it's very important actually, but it definitely shouldn't, let it identify who you are. It's impacted your life for sure, though. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And yeah. you wanted to be a top player like your dad. I mean, every kid wants to be a top player. <laughs> it's um, it's just a dream everyone has. Um, I think, obviously, it being so close to home that it's, I mean, every, like it's a massive inspiration, isn't it, having a dad who used to play as well as he did. And um, I used to play all right when I was very young. Um, but obviously, just positioning, I was just not very good at so um over over a long time i kind of distanced myself from football um and i'm more focused on business now michael how has it been coping with with you and your wife with what james has uh, uh, has got what's it been like for you as parents well, nowadays, it's part of life, isn't it? I mean, you know, it's a little bit strange actually talking about it because I've never stood on top of the rooftops and said, oh, my son's got this uh, this condition. It's, no, I, it's, I didn't know this about James, really. no, no. And it's only when we got asked to do a documentary um, that we thought, yeah, let's let's do that. It'll be, it'll be a positive. And you see all the benefits from it in terms of, you know, spreading awareness and, and all the rest of it. It's it's just life, you know. It's it's making news now, I suppose, because the documentary and because we, we, we're speaking about it. But this is something that we've uh, had as a as a family, um, you know, with with James's eyesight for you know since he was born. Really, yes, it presented itself at eight, but he was born with it. You know, myself and it's a genetic um, uh, disease that that obviously myself and, and my wife have got this uh, this this cross with our with our genetic uh, profile. So and uh, and obviously it's it's um, it's presented itself in this way. But no, James had struggles when he was a kid. He was a bloody good footballer i mean i said yeah, used to yeah. say to louise listen our, our lad's got a chance here um he just couldn't position himself as he said when the ball was with the right back he didn't know where to stand i was like cut the ball off into the striker's <laughs> feet and he's like, i don't know where to you know and but he didn't like, shut up dad he didn't know uh, he didn't know he had this problem of course he's born with it so he knows no different yeah um so that it's it's been obviously something that we've lived with forever we have to take into consideration sometimes um but all tents and purposes, he's just a normal kid. And and if we didn't tell you he had a, an eye problem, you would never, ever guess. He's got amazing coping strategies to, to deal with it. It's an incredible story. I mean, it affects one in 10,000 people, James. Um, it, it affects a small part of the retina needed for sharp central vision. So you've got vision up to a point, and I can imagine the way you've just perfectly described it. When you're trying to position yourself in a football pitch, that's when you run into trouble. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's pretty impossible um, for me to be able to play mainstream um, with like professionals because it's when it, the pitch gets even bigger and bigger and the play gets faster and you need to rely on passing more. That's I think that's where I lost enjoyment out of it. 
But um, yeah, it is, it is what it is, really, isn't it? It's like not much you can do. Just crack on. <laughs> you just crack on. Yeah. But tell me though about how you've dealt with it in terms of being able to play, because you play for the England partially sighted futsal team. Yeah, I mean that was um, I when I um, well thought of visually impaired football, I just presumed it was people in blindfolds with a bell and a ball. And I think that's what a lot of people still believe that it is, but that's actually not the case. The standard is actually really high, and it's just like football, but just five a side, a smaller pitch. And that was really what I was wanting, because it, it helped with the problems I had. It was um, The problems was the pitch getting too big, having to rely on positioning a lot more. And don't get me wrong, you still have to rely on positioning, but the pitch is small enough to where you know where people are, and it's it is like a great... So it is a great sport, but um, the standard was just absolutely <laughs> blew me away. James got invited during the documentary that was filming to train with the England team. And, I mean, it was just incredible. I would go as far to say if you put four Premier League players out there playing on the pitch with these with these lads, you'd, you'd they'd, you know, give really? them an absolute game. I mean, it's a it's the same sport, still football, but tactically you're only playing 4v4, the ball's a bit heavier. Um, it's quite incredible how good they are. And I think it was it was quite a shock to the system for James to, to play with, with players that are so so good. And you, Michael, get involved as any parent would, watching from the sidelines. Well, I wasn't going to play myself when I saw the standard. <laughs> really? <laughs> it was, no, it's it's really good. It's and it good. was a fantastic, you know, to <laughs> obviously James's condition, you know, it will make headlines. It, it brings us here here today to spread the word in many ways. But, um, it's also great for for the sport itself. These players are very talented uh, in their own right, and uh, and filming the documentary, having you know, or, or following a, a team as well. We yes. followed them to the World Cup. They got to the World Cup final and incredibly got beat in the last second by Ukraine. I think it was three two in the end. Um, it you was spoiled the whole. <laughs> <laughs> but it was an incredible, uh, incredible story and. Um, yeah, we uh, we love following the team, and James made a lot of friends, and could obviously relate to a lot of people in the team as well, which was important for him. Uh, so, how long were the cameras following you for the documentary, James? Um, well, it was actually quite a while because it was during COVID, so it got pushed back a bit. There was some recording on the documentary where I was actually like fifteen, and I'm nearly eighteen now, so um, I definitely look a different, a lot different. I sound a lot different. And um, I'd like to think that doing the documentary has helped me like grow as a person, helped me be more comfortable in front of a camera, and a lot of those things. But apart from that, it was just a great experience. Just the whole the whole three years or however many years it was, I met a lot of nice people, met a lot of friends, had a good few games of football. It was yeah, it was just I can't say anything wrong about it. It was honestly just a surreal experience. I'm looking forward to seeing the documentary, Simon. Absolutely. You? Yeah. yeah, I was just looking at the statistics and thinking, so there's 6,500 people in this country that have this particular predicament. And if you go around the world, it looks like there's about 6.5 million people because I've never heard of it. I mean, how, how much of the sight is lost, Michael? Yeah, James's peripheral vision is is okay. It's uh, it's seeing detail. So right. if if uh, you know if he's or if if you're him, let's say, then you would see two people here. Right. But he wouldn't know which yeah, is which is which. So he can't see detail. Yeah. Um, and it's very hard for him to explain what he does see because he doesn't really no. He of course he mm. knows what he's seeing, but he doesn't know any different, as you say. So it's uh, it's very difficult. But then when I 
you know, see the doctors and the specialists and they say, well, this is something like what your son is seeing and they, you know, show you a picture, that's when it hits home. You think, wow. Um, so, yeah, I mean, but as I say, it's something that, that we live with. We take positives from. Does it enhance yeah. any of the other senses? The fact that the fact that you're challenged by it, does it enhance any, any of the other senses that you have? Well, I get asked that question quite a lot and I do actually believe it does. Not necessarily... I don't believe that it makes me be able to hear stuff louder or better than others but i do think that because i'm less reliant on my eyes i pay more attention on my other senses so let's say there's a noise in the background i feel like because i'm more paying attention to it i'll be able to pick it up before they would not i wouldn't say if we'd done like a test who can hear the best i don't think that but i do think that i paid more attention to it it's Mm. incredible when you you know i took james skiing once and straight away he himself has to recognise, yeah, through sight in a way, but obviously he's not great sight, but he's recognising, right, if I get lost on that big, wide, open (laughs) slope with thousands of people there, what do I do? Where do I go? So little things like that, um, he will pick up before anyone. His coping strategies are just incredible. It was probably a cruel thing to do because white is (laughs) an awful, awful colour for James. He can't see any contrast. So, you know, at the start, he was bombing down there and all of a sudden he, he went over this jump Ram. and I just saw my son that didn't have a clue he was about to go over a jump <laughs> doing about three somersaults oh, in no. the air <laughs> and he's gone down the wrong track and all of a sudden I'm like, right, you have to follow me for the rest of the... Which, we laugh about it, but it's these things that bring you close together. I mean, he can't drive, of course. He, he can't see, it'd be a danger on the road. I'm going to probably be his driver for the next few years, you know, and things like that. It brings us closer together. So we always look at positives. I mean, we certainly don't mope around. I think you did a bit of moping when you were really yeah. young, but mm-hmm. now he's he's there's no ounce of feeling sorry for himself at which, all. Which is brilliant. Football is for everyone. It premieres on TNT Sports uh, at... Uh, one o'clock on the January the 30th and is also available on Discovery+. Plus. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Download, stand well back, listen. Outspoken with White and Jordan. From the world's biggest sports radio station, Talk Sport. 
it appears, in the eyes of many, it has gone somewhat flat these days, Simon, at Stamford Bridge. Pochettino himself has said that the flat atmosphere amongst fans is a result of the disappointing performances under his predecessors, Graham Potter and Frank Lampard. He says, yeah, maybe it is a little bit more flat and it's not good because maybe it's a disappointment from a long period. Um, but Stamford Bridge is still very good. Having said that, Simon, what he's saying is before us, before we came on the scene, yeah, it was going a bit flat and that's why. Is he making sense with that, do you think? I mean, Pat Nevin goes even further than that. He said, my beloved Chelsea at Stamford Bridge regularly has a matchday atmosphere of a mausoleum on a rainy Monday, quite fitting as there is a cemetery just behind the main stand. It's all gone flat. Um, I should imagine it's the sum of all his parts. He, when, I mean, he hasn't done that much to lift it, has he? I mean, I watch Chelsea and I don't find them particularly engaging to watch. I mean, I, you know, I watched them the other day against Luton and the interesting part of the game was what Luton were doing to the game rather than what Chelsea did, which was a clinical performance to go 3-0 up and an away game against Luton. And then the excitement in the game came from Luton's contribution to try and get back in it. If you lose to teams like Nottingham Forest and Brentford, with respect to Brentford and Nottingham Forest... And then you blame it upon the atmosphere of the football stadium rather than the outcomes of your players, highly paid footballers and your management criteria, then you're falling on probably infertile ground. But he's probably right. Over the 18 months, they've not had a lot to watch, have they? They've had Potter start well and fizzle out. They had the laughable end of the season last year with, um, with Lampard. And then you've got Pochettino. But this is what you get with manufactured clubs. Same atmosphere at Manchester City. If the wheels come off at Man City and they're not having a particularly good period of time, we'll see how entranced their fans are. So you say this is what you get. Is this a byproduct of being, in, in your eyes, a manufactured club? Well, it's listen, these, these are wonderful clubs. I mean, Manchester City are a wonderful football club. You know, Malcolm Allison, you know, who managed my team when I grew up in the 70s at Palace, came from that environment and was part of the Joe Mercer revolution that created this wonderful football team in the late 60s at Manchester City. Um, and I, when I say manufactured, I mean the levels of success have not been organically created, have not been created by the natural forces that build football clubs. Three football clubs really came out of the ether that were manufactured by the wishes of individuals. Those That was Blackburn Rovers under Jack Walker, Chelsea under Roman Abramovich, and um, Manchester City under Sheikh Mansour. Manchester City wouldn't be winning leagues and dominating English football if Sheikh Mansour didn't have a vision which imparted his particular brand of loving football by watching two games over... 11 years mm. um, or 12 years or 15 years or whatever it is so it goes with the territory it goes with an element of there's a, a very valuable core base of Manchester City fans a very valuable core base of Chelsea fans but when you get to moments where it's not where the success has been where you've bought and paid for and created success and become acclimatised to it then all of a sudden when it doesn't become the same thing because you would have thought that Chelsea now given what their fans were facing 18 months ago, which was what certain sections of the media were portraying as a complete and utter potential removal of Chelsea from the landscape of football. Their club was going to be closed down with the departure of Roman Abramovich. It was an existential threat. No one really thought that, but it was certain sections of the media that were suggesting that, because someone was always going to buy it, that you would now have a group of Chelsea fans that were so grateful for their club being in existence that there would be nothing but behind it. But that's not modern-day football fans now. Modern-day football fans have a different view about what they're entitled to see and what they think they should watch. And you've watched 18 months of pretty staid experiences mm. at Chelsea. In fact, staid, pedestrian, boring, dysfunctional, uh, mechanical, um, clunky, 
not particularly enjoyable to watch, um, and no particular stars. Yet all they've really read about is the profligacy of their ownership model. Well, they'll need to be up for it tonight because they're a goal down to Middlesbrough, uh, and you would think, you know, with the progress leading them to a final, um, the Chelsea support will be loud and behind their side. Pat Nevin goes further, though, and we often talk about the north-south divide. Pat saying, you want atmosphere, head north. He says, last week I was at Sunderland, Newcastle, then Middlesbrough, Chelsea, then Newcastle, Manchester City. For those unaware of the geography, these games were all in cities in the northeast of England at big clubs who are passionately supported, steeped in football, but who rarely win major trophies. He's right. They might not win trophies, but by God, you know all about it when you go to the games. The atmosphere... It's fantastic. Right. In some cases, compared to down here. Okay. So I think the atmosphere at Arsenal was fantastic. Is it? So what, what it is, because we've been there and watched it. It, uh, was, it was a library. You saw Arsenal Man City. It was a big one that But night. there's a universal a ex- feeling that the atmosphere at the Emirates is significant. I mean, we can all make these comparisons and draw parallels. And there's lots of things that are positive about northern clubs and lots of things that are positive about southern, southern clubs. I've always maintained the view that because of the nature of this side of the country, specifically London football clubs, let's stick 10 clubs in Manchester and see how committed they are. We've got 10 football clubs in the capital. It's a very different style of life down here. There's a very different demand. And football clubs don't tend in this part of the country, right or wrong, to be the absolute cornerstone of the community. Download, stand well back, listen. Outspoken with White and Jordan. From the world's biggest sports radio station, Talk Sport. Andrew, in Newcastle, tell me, are we on something here? Um, when you go north, you get atmosphere and you get passion. Is Pat Nevin right? You come down here in some places like Stamford Bridge, where he used to play, it's like a mausoleum. What do you think, Andrew? Morning, lads. Morning. Uh, I was on. A, I was on a few weeks ago. I had, we had a little, me and Mister Jordan had a little bit of a ding dong. <laughs> uh, you might. I finished up the call with a Michael Owen comment, which went down well. I think. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so it's just in regards of when it, he's going on about this Jory rowing about other northern clubs, saying that it's a myth. It's not a myth. It's the fact is that football fans are more passionate. Yes, it, it is. A, it is the cornerstone of the, like of the local community. But is that not the same in Southern clubs as well? And just in regards of when he's, his defence was Arsenal or Tottenham, did, did he watch the Arsenal game on the weekend, did he? Was it lacking atmosphere somewhat, Andrew, in your, in your view? Well, I mean, if my, if my team won 5-0 in a Premier League fixture, if you look at the lower tiers in that stand, they were empty before the full-time whistle. Now he'll say, oh, it's the rush to get the tube. <laughs> best transfer system in the country apparently down <laughs> south which we haven't got up north I'll tell you we wear an awful lot for trains and we don't run out before the final whistle especially if you're 5-0 up you stay and you clap your team off why pay all that money with the ridiculous prices of tickets down south and you leave 5-10 minutes early to catch the tube what, what do you think Andrew just before you go what do you think makes the atmosphere and the passion at a northern club like Newcastle superior to the ones in London we love football Jim Top and bottom of it. Football is everything up here to us. To them, it's it's a hobby. To us, it's a lifestyle. Simple as that. And he, he'll come back with, oh, I've been there for one or two games and he'll sit and slag a north off when he's sitting in his house in London and he flies off to Spain. But <laughs> if he actually stayed up here and took a little bit of the culture... I did. The I had, I had 250 shops around the country and some of them in Newcastle spent a lot of time up there and you guys make a lot of noise and that's wonderful. You don't win anything, no, do you? 
Well, well, no, we'll You've always made lots of noise up in the north, in your part of the world, but you don't week. win anything. It's lots Hang of noise. When's the, last time, when's the last time Crystal Palace won anything? We're not talking about Crystal noise. Palace. We're, t- we're, talking, we're talking about football clubs in the south and drawing a parallel between the atmospheres. We've already conceded a point. If you actually lived in London and understood the dynamics of London, when I make the observation about the culture of London, then you would understand my points. That if you've got 10 or 15... I haven't finished. You've got 10 or 15 different football clubs in and around London, they won't necessarily form part the same same value of the community that your club does. No one's devaluing your clubs. We're just giving a different point of view. I understand implicitly and explicitly how valuable Newcastle United Football Club is to its community and how important it is. I spent inordinate amounts of time listening to John Hall and Freddie Shepherd and Douglas Hall uh, telling me about this and understanding it. So I get it. I just don't happen to concur that all the best supporters are in the north. Half of Manchester United's fan base comes from bloody Surrey. Andrew, listen, Steve Bashan, listen, thank you. the worst fans in the country. We've got the worst home atmosphere in the country. There's only that way, and that's good, and that's because we've got local lads that go marching them away. At home, you've got all them coming up from your from your way on the train. True. We played them in the cup final. Agreed. Last season. Last season. I was there for the full weekend. Do you know how many Man United strips I've seen on a Friday and a Saturday night? Not one. I saw my first one an hour before kickoff because we're all coming from home. Jumping on the tube. Very true. I agree. We will agree on that. Andrew, what a great call. Thank you for that. Vernon, Vernon, good to speak to you, Vernon. Chelsea fan is a regular on our show. Good morning. What what do you make of what Pat Nevin's saying? Stanford Bridge these days can be something of a mausoleum. Uh, Well, (laughs) yeah, like a a lot of clubs all around the country, up north as well, by the way. I've heard Liverpool fans complaining many times on phones about the atmosphere at Anfield and Anfield's deemed as one of those places where the atmosphere is always great, and it isn't. It isn't anywhere, Jim. I'm telling you, a lot of it's down to the atmosphere around the club itself, and there's a thing of doom and gloom at Chelsea at the moment. There is. I'm not going to lie. And doesn't mean to say that the atmosphere will make you great tonight, by the way, because believe you me, if Chelsea win 3-2 in the last minute, and, and or 4-2, and go through, the, 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 the camera will be shaking, Jim. Yes, yes. the atmosphere will go mental. <laughs> and, I, and that's just like a lot of clubs. And I do, I do get it, what Pat Nemi's saying in a way about the Mausoleum thing, but then a lot of games are like kicking off early, like the Arsenal game the other day. And it's so hard for football fans to get up for games that kick off at midday. It really is. It's, it's a different type of thing. You, you're off asleep. You, it's just different. So yeah, forget yeah. having early games. Everyone's early games are at the atmosphere's flat gym. That's unfair. Um, uh, with Chelsea, last year, well, the worst uh, thing at the Chelsea, and I've been to Point Chelsea since the 70s when I was a little kid. And that's the worst year I can remember for decades. Decades. It was absolutely dismal. Because Roman's gone, Chelsea fans are really, really not getting over it yet. Simon's right what he said. We all, you know, people were scaremongering. I mean, I know one minute Chelsea would disappear off the face of the earth. But I was concerned. But unfortunately, the people who have come in, I don't feel they quite get football. And I don't think they quite get Chelsea. Roman really got himself into the history of Chelsea. Mm, mm. He bought into it. Yes. And the fans idolising Jim. They really, really do, honestly. They sure. Vernon, not for the honestly, first time. A really good call from you. Thank you. I mean, you've got the biggest club in English football winning everything with their manager constantly telling everyone that the fans need to support the club more. Pep Guardiola constantly calling it. And, you know, as far as the Newcastle fans, well, wonderful. You've got a club at moment, but empty vessels make the most noise. <laughs> OK. Scott, thank you for that one. Jim, atmosphere. Go to Glasgow. 
Best for noise in Britain. Well, you've been there, Simon, haven't you? Rangers Celtic, and it was something else. But let's see how loud it gets at the bridge tonight. Danger. Flammable exchanges ahead. Outspoken with White and Jordan. From the world's biggest sports radio station, Talk Sport. It's Jim and Simon. We're live in TalkSport. We're in the company of Martin Simmons. Martin joined uh, the board and direct of directors at Southampton back in 2017, became chief executive 2019, left his role as Southampton chief executive last May. Southampton, of course, and it's painful for Southampton fans to hear it, relegated from the Premier League, but making uh, huge strides to get back, of course, to the top flight. Uh, Martin, as you might imagine, many Southampton fans absolutely glued listening very very closely to what we are talking about and we'll broaden it out of course in the final hour because we'll talk about FFP talk about a whole bunch of things affecting other football clubs not least the car crash that is Reading at this precise time what is going on with them we'll get to that there was an interim period uh, Martin between Ralph Hassan to Udall going and Nathan Jones coming in when Nathan Jones joined the football club eyebrows were raised a bit particularly after he said this I've compromised. I've compromised in terms of certain principles because of one personnel, but two, you know, um, the, the way the people want to play and so on. And, and I've compromised because fans and, and so on. Compromised on a few little things, to be honest with you, but no more. Because at the end of the day, it's, it's, I've been very successful. And I've been very successful playing a real fluent style, real fluent style. And then tried to implement that at Stoke and it didn't because of certain things. Then I came back to Luton, we were a real aggressive front-footed side. Statistically, there weren't many better than me around Europe in terms for aggression, clean sheets, defending your box, balls in the box, XG, all those things. We were, we were pound for pound the best because we were spending next to nothing and producing so much. And I've gone away from that because because maybe it's Premier League, because of how things look, because of certain players and internationals and stuff like that. But because at the end of the day I've had to compromise certain things and I won't, I'm not doing that again So compromise, compromise, compromise Nathan Jones what was the thinking behind bringing him in? Yeah and I think as, as we talked about before there's always a plan and there's always people thinking things through so you can be criticised for making a mistake but it's not like people make it up so I think the, the view was that we've been playing a certain way for a long period of time and doing the same things and it wasn't working and they wanted something that was different I think when Nathan talks about you know, the data and the science behind his stats, that is true. You know, we did all that work and he was in the top five managers in Europe for improving teams and transitions and all these different things. So, so there was lots of logic behind it. Um, you know, so, so I think it was about changing the way we played, having an impact, trying to get the players on side. So he had a very good reputation for working with players and having a good relationship. And I think our players had kind of fallen out of love with what we were doing. I think, I think the difficult bit in... Um, in football is about this again with having this plan and having the right people at the right time mm. um, and you know I always said that you know I thought I did a pretty good job in a smaller club that was building and growing I do a terrible job at Man United in my opinion I just wouldn't deal with the, the corporate structure of it and maybe Nathan was the same it was the wrong moment at the wrong time I don't think he was given a chance if I'm honest I think the fans have turned against him before he started which doesn't help you, you sacked him after what 95 days yeah I, I couldn't tell how long it was but yeah I don't, I don't think it worked from did you, you know, tell him the good news uh, I don't think we can get into that that kind of stuff, sadly. But you know, I think I think it didn't work from the beginning. I don't think the relationships gelled inside the club and outside the club, and that made it difficult. But again, as I said about Ralph, I've never seen anything but Nathan working hard in his office all day, all night, doing the best he can. And I think it, it turns on those key moments. We had a couple of moments where he won games and everything felt great. 
We had a couple of moments where, you know, we hit a post and we didn't win that game and things went backwards. So it was a difficult moment. It's nothing I can really get into, but, you know, it's tough for him mostly, but it was a difficult time for the club, I think. I mean, it's fine margins, isn't it, Simon? You did the same at Palace. It either works and it works well and you go with it and everybody's happy with what that brings or if it goes against you, you've got a decision to make. Well, yeah, it's easy to make decisions. It's been much more difficult to make the right ones. I didn't think it was a great appointment. I mean, Martin and I have had this conversation and I know that there was lots of reasons behind the appointment, but I looked at Nathan Jones and the statistics, this is where you get the balance between statistics, interviewing someone, gut feel and judgment call. Um, and I wasn't surprised. I wasn't surprised at the outcome because it's one thing being able to... And his own analysis of his own career is slightly warped and deluded because if you take it into the Stoke equation, I mean, you're not going to get a worse win record than you got at Stoke. And one thing is being able to do it at Luton, at that time in Luton's evolution. It's another thing landing on the stage in a Premier League where there's a whole do, new set of rules, the manner in which you communicate. You've got a whole different load of other component parts in the conversation that you can't price into your thinking um, in terms of what you might have experienced in the Championship. When you get into the Premier League, you've got Premier League footballers that have got highfalutin opinions of themselves, what they will listen to, what they won't listen to. And managers can walk in a dressing room and they're going to have the reputation of being a million-pound footballer like Trevor Francis was. They can open their mouth... And the first thing that comes out of their mouth, their reputation will be gone and the players will take their view. And I think Nathan Jones fell into that category. He may well have been the hardest working person that slept at the training ground dawn till dusk. That doesn't come into the equation when you're a busy fool. You've got to be able to adapt to the landscape that you're in. It's very easy from the outside in, but I didn't think, I understand the reasons why the appointment was made, but I felt it was an appointment fraught with an outcome, not as quickly as it happened, but I didn't think he'd get them out of relegation trouble and I didn't think he'd be the ultimate solution for them. And then you flushed with the idea of Jesse Marsh, um, who you approached, Yep. but then who turned you down. Jesse Marsh uh, says this. I was in Southampton. I was ready to go. Yeah. I was ready to go to work the next day. And then the, the negotiation got delayed a, a couple days. And what they had said is that they needed to get aligned from a board perspective, which uh, that sometimes can happen. And I, I dealt with that in Leeds a little bit with the 49ers and different time zones and continents. And in that time that they delayed, what I saw was a lack of vision at the of what, was, what the future was going to be. And that ultimately scared me away. I will also be honest... I, like I said, I was heartbroken from leaving Leeds. And I also just emotionally from Leeds was still in a very unstable, I think best way to describe situation because the emotion, I, and by the way, the second match was back at Ellen Road. No fear factor about potentially being associated with two sides that might get relegated for no, you and your no, reputation? No, it was more, again, I did my data team did research on Southampton. I was ready to go. I was ready yeah. to sign on the dotted line. Two days before I said no. And I knew that they had a 95% chance of being relegated at that time. You know, so it wasn't about that. So that was Jesse Marsh. What, what's, what's your view of what he's, he's saying, Martin? You, you guys didn't have any vision. Yeah, I, I'm not sure that's exactly what he's saying. But let, let me go back to the first question and then I'll come to that. So uh, I think Ralph Hassan, who I worked with for a long time, Nathan, not so long. Um, he told me two things about footballers, which I will share with you. So one was, he said, the first time when you take over a club, the first time you go on the pitch, the first training session, if you don't get that right, you're dead. 
as Simon says in the players, lose respect for you and it's back hill from there. And the second one he said, he used this language of, um, you know, you need proof points. So I always used to use the analogy of, if you said to fullbacks, like, I want you for 90 minutes to run up and down the touchline and they're looking at you going, why are you doing that? And you win the game 5-0, then he would say to me, well, they now believe me and they're going to keep running where I want them to run. If you lose 5-0, they go, oh, he doesn't know what he's doing and they start coming in, right? And I think where, where it went wrong for Nathan was that, which is he said, we were going to do this and actually, the players really bought into it and thought, this is exciting, it's different. But we just didn't get the results, and then they start losing belief. It then takes you to the, the, the Jesse story. So I felt, following Nathan, that the right thing to do was to go back to who we were, one, and go back to our pressing style, our Red Bull style, um, which obviously Jesse came from. And we were also in a time critical, I'm not sure it was 95% Jesse, but it, was, it wasn't good. Um, and we needed to do something instantly. And I felt, having met Jesse a few times, that he would have that instant impact. Whether or not he'd be the right person to manage a club for five years was not the point. He would come in on day one, overly positive, the American attitude of I can get this done. There was no language in Jesse's language with me that he couldn't get it done. He could go in on day one and say, this is how we're going to play, this is how we're going to change. And I felt he'd be brilliant for the atmosphere. And that's why we made that decision. I think what Jesse saw was what I mentioned before was that the club was starting to go in different directions. And I think he started to look beyond that season and thought, I don't know whether next season, if I get this done, you'll be here, I'll be here, we'll be going in the same direction. And mm. I think at the time that was disappointing to me, but I understood so, it. So you offered him it and he turned it down? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, he, he, How did you feel about that? Well, fine, because he, 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 I mean, again, without going too much, I think he spoke to Simon about it the other day. You know, he, he was there. I spent two days with him going through the planning. He was ready to go. And then at the last minute, he decided it wasn't the right opportunity for him. He, he dealt with it in a very good way it was disappointing mm -hmm. for us because we were yeah. five, five days you were ready to go but um, yeah. uh, you know it is did, what it is did he put any more meat in the bones to you Simon listen to the podcast um, <laughs> I think um, what the point he was making was that he had complete CEO buy-in and I don't think he got quite the same buy-in from the ownership that didn't give him the confidence to feel that this was a longer term project for him that was my taking that's not what he specifically said but that was my reading between the lines that the CEO was advocating very strong and very committed to wanting him in the business and that was yeah. going to be enough to get him across the line into the business. But the vision beyond that from the owner perhaps was slightly different and that made him have second thoughts. Yeah, and I think that's fair. I think that the, the ownership and wanted to change direction, uh, Jason Wilcox was coming in, they wanted to go in a different direction and that's their thing and this worked. Okay. And I think Jesse probably felt that whereas the rest of us were trying to just keep going along that season, I think. Download, stand well back, listen. Outspoken with White and Jordan. From the world's biggest sports radio station, Talk Sport. It's the three initials that football fans, I think, recoil from these days, but it's alive and well and very much with us, FFP. And of course, we're used to it now. Last week, both Everton and Nottingham Forest were charged with breaching the Premier League's profit and sustainability rules. Um, the former chief executive of Southampton, Martin Simmons, has been with us and is still with us. And... Martin, to be fair, there was a few raised eyebrows, although I think Simon's in the camp of... No, I, w I wasn't particularly surprised when I heard this, when uh, the Newcastle chief executive, Darren Eels, spoke about FFP and spoke about it in this sense. We've always spoken about this. With the ownership that we have, they're committed to spending the maximum we can under the regulations, but we have to meet the regulations. We've seen, obviously, in a recent case with Everton that PSR certainly has teeth to it. So it's something that we've always been cognizant of. We've always been thinking about this as a project. It's not a straight line from A to B. We're going to have ups and downs because that's football. But we think about everything from that medium to long-term plan. And I think 
as we grow the revenues, that gives us that capability to, to be able to invest more into the squad. Is there an argument here, Martin, that FFP can stop a club like Newcastle in terms of being super ambitious? Yeah, a, a, a little bit, but I don't think a lot. I think in the case of Newcastle, they're a really good example of how to get it right and how the rules actually work. Because I think the temptation for them to go too fast and do things too quickly and waste money might have been there without it. I know them relatively well. And from the very first day, they were like, we're going to stick to the rules, we're going to build. And I think in five years time, you'll see the benefit of that. I, th- I think what Darren is saying is factually right. You know, I think there are ways you can say things that maybe don't make such a big media story out of it. And I don't think they want to be in a position where people are coming after their players the whole time. But I, I think they are, you know, if you, if you try and classify football clubs in brands, they're trying to do things the right way. They're trying to stick to the rules. They're trying to build year on year on year. And I think they're a really good example of why those rules work, because they will be sustainable. They're not going to waste money. They're not buying players and then changing their mind six months later. They're building in the right way, I think. Are, are you surprised by the difficulties, shall we say it that way, that Everton appear to have found themselves in, that Forest appear to find themselves in? I, I'm surprised that they asked, that they're, they're surprised, I guess is probably the right yeah, way to yeah, put it. Yeah, Because yeah. I think working in the industry, I, I was probably more... Um, you know, moving faster and trying to buy more players. But I had really good people around me that would stop me every day. And I, again, I and Simon and I spoke the other day, we talked about this situation where, you know, we had, I think in one summer, we lost both our main fullbacks, Cedric and Ryan Bertrand, I think it was, I can't remember. Mm. And we had to go out and buy some. And I was desperately keen to buy them. And I remember the list. It was Cucurelli went to Brighton. Castagne went to Leicester and tried to buy both of them and they just laughed at us because of the money we had. And we ended up going in the market and buying, I think, Tino Livramento and Thierry Smalls, another young player from Everton. And, and it kind of worked out all right for us. But if we'd gone and bought those players, in the long term, it would have worked out maybe better for us because they went on to bigger things and got sold. But we just didn't have the money to do it. So therefore, we didn't do it. Yeah, so yeah. we were always aware it was part of every meeting. It was part of every discussion about what the rules were. Um, so I'm you, a little... you could do it, but not within the rules of FFP. Correct. Yes, yeah. so we had the finances to do it, but but we did not. We were not able to do it within the rules, uh-huh. and therefore we didn't do it. Yeah. I, I think the, the the other thing worth talking about that I wanted to ask Simon about is, I suspect that the Premier League are having to be stronger because of the independent regulator. I don't know that for a fact because I'm no longer there, but I suspect because the independent regulator is saying we're going to do this for you, the Premier League now have to stick to the rules. And I think it's probably fair to say <coughs> that. In the European regulations, which I guess is FFP, right, we would have thought we have to stick to those clearly if we want to play in Europe. And there was a time where we were playing Mm. in Europe. I think we probably felt, if I'm honest, a hand on heart, that if we'd slightly broken the rules in the Premier League, we could have gone to see the Premier League seven years ago and gone, oh, I've made a bit of a mistake here. Can you just help us out? We'll sort it out (laughs) next window. And I think it would have worked. I think we had that relationship. I think that's changed. And I think the Premier League have to stick to the rules and the rules are there for a reason. I think the independent regulator would deal with that if they don't. Well, I think Martin's right, Simon, is he not? Like, these days it seems to be the Premier League's rules are there. It's their way or no way. Well, it's the rules, isn't it? It's, it's, nothing, it's never been about rules. It's about the ability to enforce them. It's all well and good. You can put the best rules in the world, but you can't enforce them, which is the situation possibly that Manchester City may find themselves in, in, in the Premier League's inability to enforce rules because they can't have the bandwidth to do it I think there's a variety of reasons why they've done it I think independent regulators possibly one because otherwise it would be a coincidence they've livened themselves up I think the rise of the Middle East and what they're prepared to do economically and how they might want to bring them in line at some point so that they don't break the ecosystem in terms of what's been established in Europe a whole raft of things I mean you've seen the Spanish leagues do it you've seen Javier Tevez go right that'll do 
to, from, from, to, to Madrid and to Barcelona. We need to restructure the leagues. We're going to put salary caps in there. We're going to make sure that the economic sustainability of the league is more prevalent than the individual aspirations of a football club that will, will put themselves in hock for whatever they want to do based upon whoever owns them at the time. Um, I think there's a whole raft of factors. I just think the balance... I think the FFP is a decent tool, but I think it's a blunt instrument right now, and yeah, I think it needs yeah. to be sophisticated yeah. to en- enable new ownership models to have maybe some dispensation because yeah. they're picking up inheriting other people's challenges. I think there should be dispensation for the Nottingham Foresters of the world, not for him to go mad like he did Maranakis and not pay any attention. Because I think me and Martin are in the same place. You don't miss fair pay, fair, financial fair play targets unless you want to or, you, or you're stupid. Mm. Right? And, and I don't think he's stupid. So I don't think he cared that much about it, adhering to them because you know what your, your business plan looks like in January. You know in January what your financials are going to look like in, in June because you've already forecast for your wages. You know what's going to happen to you. You know what your amortisation depreciation is going to be. I think that you should be given a little bit of latitude for newly promoted football clubs because there's no point going in that division and not having the ability to compete because all you're then doing is really maintaining the status quo. So you've got to give a little bit of latitude if you're carrying two years of championship losses into the into the losses you're allowed in the third year in the Premier League. And then you might find that financial fair play stops uh, stops supporting the argument that those that make it, that it encourages the cartel. I think it's for sustainability. You think the sporting yeah. sanctions are too strict at the moment? Uh, equals points deductions? Not really, because I think, I think if you have rules, you have to stick to them. So the example I gave to you, you know, we went backwards as a football club in the end because we couldn't buy those players. Other teams bought them. It doesn't feel fair that there aren't some, some sanctions. I think where the rules work really well during my time was if you, if you take Man City, I don't want to get into that, the, the, but the infrastructure they built there, Tottenham, I mean, Daniel and I are never best friends in how, how we negotiated, but look at the infrastructure he's built. And I think Newcastle want to go down the same route. So I think we want to encourage clubs to invest in infrastructure, academies, women's teams. But they don't come, they don't come off of FFPs, That's they? what I mean, yeah. So, But but if, if you're encouraging a team like Forrest to come into the market and and just buy 25 players, I think you've got, to, you've got to control that. But what you don't want to restrict is what they can do in Newcastle to build that club. And Here's actually, a question for you. Yeah. Do you think City have got? Do you think City have got a case to answer? I mean, I don't know the ins and outs. I've never read the paperwork, but I'm, I'm you've been sh- around enough. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure they have. I think the the difference between Everton and and Forest and City is that I think it's black and white. They admit they've made that mistake. Whereas Man City is probably more about the nuance of the rules and sponsorship and where the money's come from. I think they probably have got a case to answer, and I think they probably will. I think without being too direct about it, I'm not sure what an impact it will have because you've already built a legacy here. You know, the worst case scenario for me is they get some point reduction, they finish second in the league, they still win the Champions League and on they go. And I, I don't know, I've never asked them, but if you look at the infrastructure they've built, I'm sure you've been up there and looked at it. I mean, they've rebuilt a city. Mm-hmm. So there's much more there than sporting performance. And, Indeed. Um, and I, think they, I think they will just get over what happens. I, I don't believe that the Premier League would relegate them. I don't believe that. I think it'd be about points deductions and it'll be about you know, analysing the, the money they've got from where. Danger. Flammable exchanges ahead. Outspoken with White and Jordan. From the world's biggest sports radio station, Talk Sport. Thanks for listening to Outspoken with White and Jordan. Please leave us a five-star review wherever you get your podcast from. We're back tomorrow to bring you the best of the show. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.